Well, after that, I think I'll just close in prayer, and uh, we can finish for the day. That's a tough act to follow. Thank you. Uh, does a uh, does a heart good to see and to hear a group of young people like that share what the Lord has done in their hearts. So thank the Lord for you. We appreciate that very much. It's great to be back in Claremont. I've got a couple of roadies here too. I've got a couple of groupies that uh, made the trek from Arizona. Yes, that's you, Daniel. I'm talking about you. We're thankful to have you here, bro. It's, uh, it's just a pleasure to be back. I know it's been a few years. I think 2009 when I was here last. And uh, we appreciate very much the invitation to be back with you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. And it's, uh, it's a delight. It's a delight to share in something that, frankly, as we'll be discussing this weekend, the world just doesn't get it. But we have it, and we're thankful for it. So before I tell you about what I'd like to speak about, um, let's turn right in our Bibles, please. And I want you to turn to Psalm 107. And let me start the inevitable Joe jokes that will be coming this weekend. We've got a couple of average Joes. We've got Big Joe and Little Joe. Joe to the power of two. But let me uh, thank you for, for those who organized the conference, but also... For the Lord to pair me up with uh, Joe Reese. It's good to see you, brother. It's nice to be with you again. Joe has known me for a few years, let's put it that way. And uh, it's just wonderful to spend time with the Lord's people. There's nothing like it. I look forward to your ministry this weekend, bro, very much so. I see that they have water labeled Joe and Joe. It'll be like Abraham, brother. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll, I'll take the left. Right? <clears throat> Psalm 107, I'd like to start reading with you at verse 31. Of course, this is a verse that's repeated several times in this psalm. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works under the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him. In the assembly of the elders, he turneth rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and a dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation. And then please turn over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. We're going to read three texts this evening to start. Isaiah, chapter 51. may not initially connect these three passages together, but I hope to make that connection for you. Isaiah, chapter 51. I'll read the first three verses. Hearken to me. Ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. 
Finally, the last text, please, in the New Testament. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Perhaps a text that you're a little bit more familiar with. Mark 6, and we'll start reading at verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat, and they departed into a desert place by ship, privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep as not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said unto him, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? He said unto them, how many loaves have ye? Go and see. When they knew, they saw five and two fishes. He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when they had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fishes. And what they did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. I trust the Lord will uh, help us understand these passages together. So I'm not going to quiz you. I'm not going to make it that challenging. But you might be thinking, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> How do we connect these three passages? How is it that we can think of the God who can turn the wilderness into rivers? The one who can turn the desert into the garden of the Lord? The one who can feed 5,000 people in the middle of a place where there was no food? Well, I want to think with you this weekend about the concept of the wilderness, of the desert. I figure I'm fairly qualified to do that because I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Suffice to say, it's awfully dry. There's some great benefits to it. I like the fact that you take a shower and you put your towel on the rack, you come back an hour later and it's completely dry. It's somewhat convenient. Um, but when we moved to Arizona five years ago, just a little over five years ago, there was a bit of an adjustment. I don't miss shoveling snow, I'll tell you that. But um, it was a change. And it wasn't that long ago, maybe just about over two years ago, that I was just reading in the scriptures. You know, this is often how you get ideas for messages and just for your own Bible study. And we all very often speak about wilderness. But I was reading in Mark 6. And it struck me, the way the disciples spoke to the Lord and said, Lord, 
they knew that the Lord understood, of course, but you could sort of see the machinery of their minds going. They're like, uh, Lord, there are a lot of people here. And if you may not have noticed, we're in the desert. And I think it struck me after reading the text as I, I quite enjoy running and sometimes I do this run out in the, in the middle of the desert, it's just me and the road runners. And, and the cactus, of course, as I mentioned, the cactus is a noble plant. I've come to appreciate that. Um, and you realize that, that I was out there in the middle of, the, of, of nowhere, in the middle of, of the wilderness, as it were, of the desert, and I, I got a better picture of what the disciples meant when they said to the Lord, this is a desert, Lord. I mean, they can't just go to a corner store. They can't just, there isn't a garden here that they can harvest fruit from. Don't you think we should send them all away? How gracious of the Lord not to berate his disciples, but to take what little they had and fed those thousands of people. We'll talk more about the feeding over the course of the weekend. So my goal this weekend is to just have you appreciate something you probably already know and understand. You've probably sat through dozens of messages where the, the wilderness has been referred to. But let's stop and think a little bit more about the details of that wilderness, the details of the desert, as it were. We know, for example, that the word occurs in the scriptures hundreds of times, both in the Old and the New Testament, translated in the New Testament, which is where our focus is going to be this weekend. It's translated sometimes desert, sometimes wilderness, sometimes solitary, uh, sometimes desolate, but all under the same umbrella of the same word. And you could probably immediately think of all sorts of things that happened in the desert. We could think, of course, of the Jewish nation traveling through the wilderness after having uh, had the exodus out of Egypt and crossing the water, and now they find themselves in the wilderness. Well, the Lord hadn't intended them to be in the wilderness for as long as they were, but they wandered about, as we know. And so we, we tend to think of a negative aspect of the wilderness when we think of them wandering, as it were, through it. But try to think of almost any major character of the Old Testament. And you'll find the wilderness, won't you? Whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, Moses in particular, Elijah. We'll make some references to Elijah over the course of the weekend. It's hard to think of almost any major character in the scriptures, including the Lord Jesus himself, without thinking about a period of time in the wilderness. Now, is it just a coincidence? Is it just a coincidence that the Lord happened to recount much of what went on in the scriptures and that human civilization happened to just be near the wilderness? Or does the Lord have something more to tell us? You see, the, the tiny little piece of the puzzle that we want to look at together this weekend reminds us of the massive fabric of the puzzle, as it were, that God will use absolutely everything in his power to teach us about himself and his marvelous love towards us. And the little piece that we want to look at this weekend is that the Lord will actually use the physical landscape of the planet to teach us about himself. There is nothing unused in the, if you will, armamentarium of God to teach us about himself. Isn't that fantastic? That's my God. I hope he's yours tonight. 
The God who loves me so much that even the desert draws me to him. That's the kind of God I want to tell you about this weekend. So how are we going to tackle this desert? Well, gently. If you've ever walked through a desert, you know you've got to be careful. One of the motivations to do this was um, Heather, my wife, and our two beautiful little daughters, Alyssa and Katie. Uh, we try and do hikes every once in a while. We quite enjoy going up for little hikes before it gets into 110 degrees. And um, we took the girls in a little area not far from our home, actually one of the running trails that I go on, and we decided to take a little hike. And we quite enjoyed it. It was really nice. And then all of a sudden, uh, Alyssa, my older daughter, said, Daddy, I feel something funny on my foot. I don't know how familiar you are with the desert. I don't know if any of you are familiar with something called a jumping choya. Anybody know what that is? One person. Okay, God bless you. So um, i got to tell you, the scientific part of my brain doesn't fully get it. But I want you to imagine jumping choya is this little plant about the size of my fist. It's kind of like a miniature cactus. It's got really quite large uh, spikes in it. And it's all over the uh, floor of the desert. They call it a jumping choya because it has very unusual stereotactic, if you're familiar with the scientific term, uh, forces and principles that, in fact, if, if you actually just get close to it, you don't have to touch it, you just get close to it, it it'll affix itself to you. And suffice to say, it's not particularly comfortable, right? So um, I looked down, and sure enough, they're attached to Alyssa's shoe, just barely hugging the edge of her foot is this jumping choya. Now, fathers or mothers in the room, what's your initial gut reaction when you see something that could potentially hurt your child? What's the first thing you do? You reach out with your hand and you pull it off. Mistake number one. <laughs> now I understand why people travel, when they go hiking in the desert, they always bring pliers with them. Um, so I won't gross you out as a hematologist. Blood doesn't generally scare me, but I won't, tell, I won't scare you with the whole of the story. But suffice to say, I very successfully extricated the jumping choya from my daughter's shoe, but now it was rather well intertwined in my hand, uh, with some of the spikes actually literally going through my fingers and the like. But nonetheless, we, we were able to, to deal with it. I think Heather was more afraid than I was. I'm like, honey... I'm the one with the cactus in my hand. So why don't you sit down? And, um, but but it, it was a reminder to me, as we'll come to talk a little bit of the moment, that there are certain features, if you will, or, or characteristics, as we'll call them. There are three characteristics of deserts. And tonight, I want to tell you about those three characteristics and how I don't think that they're coincidental in the ways of God to teach us about himself. Because that really is the lesson. I'll give you the punchline of the whole of the series already, is that we want to see how the Lord is going to use deserts to teach us about himself. And so tonight what I'd like to do is, is talk to you about these sort of three overarching characteristics of a desert. The deserts are three things, and they start with the letter D to help you remember them. They're desolate, they're dangerous, and they're dry. We'll talk about those three things. And then for the subsequent three meetings that we have together over the course of the weekend, I'd like to look at nine features of the desert, or nine things that we see happening in the desert, and for time's sake, we're just going to confine ourselves to the New Testament. So we're going to look at things like the desert was a place of isolation. The desert was a place of preparation. 
A desert was a place of nourishment, of testing, various other things that we'll look at. We'll try and take three per message to come up with a total of nine uh, features, if you will, of the desert. But let's talk about these three characteristics first. Number one, a desert, almost by definition, is desolate. What do I mean by that? Well, it's deserted, right? It's, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Now, I can tell I'm not the head of tourism for the state of Arizona, but um, we love it there. We're very thankful. We believe the Lord brought us there. The Lord brought us to a, a very small assembly. Please do pray for us. We, we, uh, we, uh, we thank the Lord for the beautiful assembly that we're in. Very often, my two daughters are the whole of the Sunday school. Um, so, so do please pray for us. We're thankful. We're so thankful the Stratmans are there with us now. Um, but we believe in our hearts that the Lord brought us to Arizona for a reason. And it wasn't just because I happened to work at Mayo Clinic and that's where they have a hospital. Uh, but I think the Lord directed our steps there. But I could a little bit tongue-in-cheek say that uh, the Lord brought us to the middle of nowhere. You know, the place of no pasture. Um, and yet, um, there's purpose in that. So when you think of, of that aspect of the desert, and we see this frequently in scriptures, it's the place where you wouldn't normally live. Again, no disrespect to Arizona, but you, you wouldn't naturally think. So if you look, for example, even at the land of promise and the layout, don't go back and look at, your, at the maps in the back of your Bible right now. You can look later. But if you look at the distribution, if you will, the population distribution. The way the cities were aligned and the cities were built, basically nobody lived in the desert. It wasn't the place to live for many of the reasons that we're going to talk about today, that it was dry and that it was dangerous. and It wasn't, it wasn't the, the most attractive feature. When you are going to uh, you know, build your, uh, your home and set up your establishment, your, your gut feeling or your gut reaction was not to start out in the middle of the desert. And yet we find that so often individuals, Elijah and others we've mentioned, find themselves in the desert. And the lesson I want to draw out of the desolation, if you will, is that despite the fact that it's the place that you wouldn't naturally live, the Lord makes it habitable. What was important when the nation of Israel was traveling through the wilderness it's not really so much that they were walking through cactus and other features of the desert. They, that what God wanted them to learn was that he was to be their God. You see, Egypt and all the blessings that they had in Egypt, all those things that they missed. Some of you have heard me say this before. You notice all the things that they missed when they were in Egypt are all the things that give you bad breath, Right? You notice that? When they whined and belly ached to Moses, oh, if only we had the garlic and the leeks and the onions. Those are the things that they longed after Egypt. Now, I've got to be careful. I've got Egyptian heritage, so I'm, I can't, can't dish the Egyptians. They, they know how to cook. Um, I always say we invented garlic. But nonetheless, um, those are the sorts of things that when, when they were feeding off of them, if I were to have had a nice garlic meal with some leeks and onions tonight, those poor folks in the front row would have passed out by now. Uh, you, 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 would, you smell it off of someone, don't you? It's kind of like what happens when the Christian goes feeding in the world. You might hide it for a while, a few good breath mints, but not for long. Where have you been feeding? 
dear Christian? What's your appetite been like? What's been your diet, as it were, over the last week? God had to show to them that even there in the middle of the desert, he could make it livable. And sometimes as Christians, I think we struggle with this. We sort of think that, you know, the world's got all the good stuff. We just sort of hold on for a while. Eventually it'll get better when we get to heaven. You know, if we could just get through this wilderness, we'll eventually get to the land flowing with milk and honey. Very often, ultimately, the very places that the Lord's people had the greatest enjoyment is when they lived in the desert. Like Abraham. When Lot went off to live in Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham stayed in the middle of nowhere almost, that's where he had his best time. Why? Because he was there in fellowship with the Lord. What's the point here? The point is, the enjoyment of your surroundings is less about your surroundings and about with whom you have your company. And sometimes you might think we're in a desert out here. This world that we live in is sometimes uninhabitable and is uncomfortable and is challenging. Financial challenges, emotional challenges, physical challenges. And if we base the whole of our enjoyment and satisfaction and happiness on our circumstances, then you're in for a roller coaster ride. Some days are going to be good and some days are not going to be so good. But the Lord can be to you, I can say this honestly, can be to you what no one else can be. Have you experienced that? You know, honestly. Have you experienced what it's like to feel isolated, to feel, if you will, out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe other people are trying to help you, but they just can't reach you. They can't reach that spot that hurts so much. Have you had the experience of knowing the companionship of the Lord in that time? That's a unique thing, isn't it? And sometimes we surround ourselves with people and we, we want to be in the garden all the time, we never have that opportunity. We'll talk more about uh, separation and isolation and so on tomorrow, but we don't have that genuine opportunity to let the Lord be our habitation. I think very often of this when it comes to David. We'll talk a bit about David when we come to the second aspect of, of deserts, but when it seemed that he you know, had left the palace and been in a situation where he was so comfortable and now the rocks become his bed. The caves become his home. He could say, I lay down and slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Not because I'm so good at hiding. I could hide in the right cave. But the Lord was his habitation. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your circumstances. It's wonderful. We don't pray that the Lord brings us in isolation. We don't pray for, for hardship per se. But don't let your enjoyment of the Lord nor your satisfaction in life be built exclusively on your circumstances. The world's really good at doing that. 
And that's why it seems that the people who have the most in this life are the most unhappy. Because they come to find all that the world has to give them and they think, is that it? There's got to be more. Deserts are desolate. Well, deserts are also dangerous. Deserts are dangerous, whether they're jumping choyas or scorpions or snakes. I thank the Lord that we ended up buying a house in a little area where we really don't have many of those because I think if Heather were to see a scorpion, we'd be on the first flight back to Toronto. Um, but uh, the desert can be a fairly dangerous place. Think of the story of the man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is an appropriate terminology, that he's going down, he's physically going down, if you look at the altitude of the place, but spiritually speaking, he's going down in many respects too, from the city of blessing to the city of a curse. And there he falls amongst thieves, gets beaten up and left half dead at the side of the road. It's a dangerous place. Lots of places to hide, lots of places to be robbed, lots of places to run into a lot of trouble. Sounds in many respects a little bit like our world today, isn't it? Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm Joe depressing tonight or Joe morbid tonight, but we live in a wonderful and a beautiful world in many respects, but we also live in a very dangerous place, don't we? We, we thank God for the safety and the security of the many places that we're in. I don't know if you've ever experienced being in challenging situations, in difficult places. did a visiting professorship last year in uh, South Africa. Spent some time at the Baragwanath Hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the world, over 7,500 beds. I mean, it's a village. Where literally on the hour every hour, they have a major trauma caused by gunfire. And uh, it's one of the few times and a few places I've been to in South America. I was in Colombia once where, uh, you know, they have the, the greatest per capita um, kidnapping per tourist, uh, which they told me after. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you feel particularly unsafe. A very, very unsettling feeling. The desert, in one sense, is like that. It can be very unsettling. The world, in many respects, is unsettling. And again, that's not to be overly simplistic or to berate the whole of the world, but you and I know have happened just in the last few weeks, whether it's running a Boston marathon or noticing uh, major changes in weather systems that affect people around the world. It's a dangerous place. And if the whole of your security is built on the safety you think the world can give you, you're going to be disappointed. We have something that's much more secure. So in the midst of this danger, the Lord gives us a safety and a security that the world doesn't get. I don't know if the world has ever felt more insecure than it is right now. Financially speaking, you know, the Dow is over 15,000, so that should be a good thing, isn't it? And yet, you speak to economists, and I'm by no means an economist, and there's this tremendous sense of insecurity that another crash can come. In the world in which I live, in medicine, on the one hand, we're grateful. 
I'm very thankful to be a part of some of the great advances that we have in seeing cancers come under better control and diseases under better control. On the other hand, there are things that are escaping us. There are infections and viruses and bird flus and, that give us a tremendous sense of insecurity. Uh, the list could go on. But what about your own personal life? That's what I'm more interested in today. Where do you draw your security from? Where do you draw your safety from? I'm so thankful that the Lord gives us a safety, a security that the world can't understand. That I know unequivocally tonight, whatever happens to me, that I'm his and he's mine. That isn't a cute hymn to carry me as a crutch through life. That isn't a psychological reassurance I give myself every day. You know, positive thinking to make me feel well. These things are written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Like, I know unequivocally that the God of the universe loves me and has me in his protection. It doesn't mean I become cavalier with my life by any means but it gives me a security, what we would call eternal security, that the Lord can provide. Do you enjoy that tonight? You might say you know it and you believe it and you understand the principles of the eternal security of the believer, and that's wonderful. But are you basking in the glow of it tonight? Are you enjoying it? And we have a safety, a security that the world doesn't know. Thirdly, deserts, not only are they desolate, not only are they dangerous, well, thirdly, pretty obviously, they're dry. Wow, I have never experienced dryness as I have in Arizona. I mean, it is, everything dries up. You don't have to worry about mold there. Everything is dry. And again, thinking of the principles of what we've seen here and what we read together, the Lord is in the business of making dry places less dry. And there in the midst of the wilderness, he fed his people, provided them manna, provided them water out of a rock. God has a way of doing that. So maybe, perhaps, one or two people in this room, or maybe a lot more, can describe part of their life right now as being a little bit dry. Just doesn't have the joy it once had. Your relationship with the Lord is not as vibrant as it was. It's kind of dried up a little bit. You're struggling. You feel like you're walking uphill. There's something missing. The world can do that to you. The world can dry you out, whether it's by work, whether it's by uh, insult, whether it's through physical or emotional challenges. And it can dry up the believer. It can't. Praise God, the Lord is in the business of making dry places wet and restoring to you like life from the dead. I read the story with my girls this week of uh, Ezekiel's dry bones. My six-year-old Katie, who fascinates me, she's like, okay, Daddy, like, can you explain this to me? Like, these bones came together and became people? She goes, that's weird, Daddy. You know, I love the inquisition of the little mind. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of what appears to be irretrievable, 
what appears to be dead can be brought to life. So let's give the humidity index on your spiritual life right now. Are you more like Arizona? Dry, desolate? Or are you basking in the garden of the Lord? And the reality is, is that the Lord wants to nourish you. You know, the, the, the hose is filled with water. You've just got to push the button and let the water come out. Maybe this weekend the Lord's intending to do that in your life. Maybe he's intending for you to realize how dry it is and give you the opportunity to fill it. One of the things we plan to talk a little bit about the young people with is a verse who, that ironically came up in our discussion in our Bible study just on Wednesday night, two nights ago. A beautiful question that Jeremiah asked. He says, if you can't keep up with the footmen, how will you contend or how will you run with horses? And I apply that verse in an interesting way, saying sometimes the Lord has to bring horses, if you will, into our lives to see how fast they can move. For you and I to realize that we're barely moving along like footmen. And that's not to be thinking in a way that you're jealous of someone else's spirituality and you see them going on for the Lord as much as it spurs you on to run faster. And I think the Lord uses conferences like this and opportunities of fellowship like this. As a man, as iron sharpens iron, so the man the countenance of his friend, that it, it pushes us to all move faster. I want the humidity index to be higher across the whole of this room tonight, if you understand what I mean. That we lift each other up. When you see your brother, you see your sister struggling, dry, you bring them something to nourish them. I love how the Lord does that. I, I did once at a conference just on, on the way the Lord feeds people, especially in their struggles. I, mean, I love how he raises a little girl from the dead and then tells her parents to give her something to eat. I mean, don't you think the Lord could raise her from the dead with food in her stomach? I mean, it's a beautiful partnership, isn't it? I always love that notion. Notice sometime, and some of you may have heard me give you this homework before, but if you haven't done this before, notice how many times in the miracles of the Lord Jesus, he employs people to work with him. But notice very carefully that he always asks them to do what is physically possible, and he does what is physically impossible. He didn't tell the parents, you raise her from the dead and I'll give her a meal. He didn't say, I'll, I'll take off his grave clothes and you raise Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead and allowed them to take off his grave clothes. That's what it is to be a partner with God. Can you imagine Joe McHale like helping the Almighty? <laughs> what can I do to help the Almighty? Well, he says I can help him. He says we're co-laborers together with Christ. Imagine that. And so I, I love this notion of the Lord coming to feed his people in their time of need. You look at Elijah, down in the wilderness, down in the desert, depressed. He just had this marvelous experience of challenging the prophets of Baal. It looked like everything was going well. And before long, he's down, discouraged, depressed, if you will. You'd meet clinical criteria for depression. 
And he was literally suicidal, asking the Lord to take his life. How did the Lord deal with him? The Lord come down and say, Elijah, will you get your act together? I mean, come on. Don't you know I'm the God of the universe? Don't you know I'm the one who made you? I mean, let's get on with it. Quit having your pity party and let's move on. No. The angel of the Lord came to Elijah, didn't even open his mouth. First thing the angel of the Lord did was touch him and then feed him and then spoke, then fed him, then spoke to him. It's actually probably a good lesson for you and I to learn when you come to comfort someone who's hurting. Sometimes a gentle touch, a casserole, does more than a sermon sometimes, doesn't it? How marvelous that in the midst of the dryness of our desert, the spiritual dryness that you might be experiencing tonight, God is willing to imbibe you with water and living water. He's willing to feed you and not just feed you anything, but feed you with the very manna of heaven. You're off in Egypt trying to have some garlic. And the Lord wants to feed you real food. Are you letting him do it? Have you cultured an appetite for the things of God? You don't wake up one morning and have a perfect appetite for all the things that God wants to feed you. It's a cultured, daily, disciplined appetite. As long as we go off and feed in the things of the world, we're missing out. We're not going to have that kind of appetite. We're not going to long for what God can feed us. A place that is dry. Well, time is gone, so we'll have to come to an end. But the last point perhaps to make tonight, not only do we say that the desert was desolate, dangerous, and dry, but off the, the, the D's for a moment, one of the things that strikes me, we've already commented on it, is really deserts throughout the whole of the scripture. It's prolific. We read about deserts from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. Why are there so many deserts in the Bible? Why is it? Is it just because geographically uh, that's the way it happens in the land of Israel and if it weren't for the Jordan River, maybe the whole of the, uh, of the land of Palestine would be a desert? But what is it that, that the Lord is trying to say to us? I think this is what he's telling us. He's reminding us that without him, life would be an exclusive desert. That he wants us to learn to be dependent on him. We need him. Of course we need him for salvation. But don't think that you come to the Lord and, and receive him and, and have salvation and that your dependency now ends and you become more and more independent and you do your own thing and you, you can use your own mind to achieve things and, and, and successful Christian living is becoming more independent of God. It's actually the very opposite. That as we mature in the faith, we realize more and more how utterly dependent we are on him. And instead of making the whole of Palestine this beautiful garden, like, like an extended garden of Eden, look what happened when they were surrounded by just gardens. It led to the great fall of the human race. 
I think the Lord is trying to teach us that deserts actually might be a good thing. Maybe it's okay that I live in Arizona. The Lord wants us to see how we need him. Let me close by asking you this question. How have you demonstrated in your life in the last seven days that you need him? Pragmatically. How could someone look at your life and say, that person is dependent on Christ? I challenge myself with the same question. You know, we don't want to be different for difference sake. We don't want to be different just so people look and say, oh yeah, he's odd. That's, that's not, I don't think, what the Lord is intending us when he says, come out from among them and be separate. It's not that we are meant to be weird or strange. But how have you pragmatically, honestly, openly in your life, in the last week, demonstrated your dependence on God? Let me give you a few examples that might help you. How many minutes... Seconds, minutes, or hours have you spent on your knees? Perhaps we demonstrate our dependency on the Lord no greater than when we pray. How about making that important decision you had to make this week? Did you sort of token ask the Lord? Like we sometimes token thank the Lord for for food before we eat it, and that's a good thing to do. Or did you really come to the Lord and say, Lord, I I want help. Is this the right thing for me? Is this the right thing for our family? To make this decision, to be at this place, to do this thing. In your workplace, do people see you as someone who can do it all themselves? Or do they see you as someone who is resting and depending on their Savior? Ways in which we can demonstrate that, ways that it's challenging, I know. And the list goes on. But I want to challenge you tonight to demonstrate our dependence day by day on the Lord. Well, a lot more about deserts to come, a lot of things that we'll talk about over the next couple of days. I might need a little extra water based on the uh, subject, uh, but I I trust the Lord is going to help us appreciate this prolific nature of deserts. And I'll turn it back either. I don't know if our chairman is coming back up or if I go right to uh, Joe number... Oh, we've got our chair coming. Okay, come on up, sir, and I will pass it back to you.